this morning to our study of Daniel. So if you will take your Bible and turn there to Daniel chapter 11. An amazing book in the Bible and even this chapter which is filled with some 135 prophecies that have already been fulfilled literally which naturally leads us to believe the rest will as well. And this morning, we're going to look at the last verses of this chapter, verses 36 through 45. Now, to prepare your hearts, let let me just remind you folks, even as invasive briars grow naturally upon the face of the earth, the insidious thorns and weeds of sin grow naturally in our hearts. And the flowers and fruits of righteousness, therefore, need to be cultivated. They need to be nurtured if we are to enjoy them. And the divine gardener gives us all of the resources we need to do just that. And he uses primarily his word and his spirit. So I trust you're willing to allow the word to do its work in your heart today and nourish you with its living water. And how sad to see fruitless trees withering in a church or people that claim to be Christians bearing bad fruit, which is a certain indication that they were never planted by God. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 7, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Fruits referring to the fruits of genuine repentance that manifests Christ-like obedience and holy living. So with this, we focus our attention on the word of God, which is also likened to mother's milk, right? Remember what Peter said, we are to be like newborn babies and long for the pure milk of the word, 1 Peter 2, 2. Why? Why should we do that? So that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted of the kindness of the Lord, if you have truly been born again. And if you haven't, then you're going to be terribly bored here today. You will have no appetite for the word of God. And unless you repent, you will perish in your sins. So will you humble yourself and trust in Christ and those of us who know and love him, let's open up our hearts to his word. So we return to Daniel 11. Remember, this is where Daniel once again presents the Antichrist in this fourth and final revelation, prophetic revelation which he has also done in the three preceding revelations that he received. And may I remind you that what we are examining here has nothing to do with Antiochus Epiphanes. He was the type that pointed to the antitype who is the Antichrist that is to come. And you may recall our little outline that we began several weeks ago when I was with you the last time. We first of all looked at the final willful king, the Antichrist, in verse 36. And then secondly, the final world religion, 
verses 37 through 9, and then today we will look at the final military conquests of the Antichrist. Let me give you a little review in terms of the final willful king in verse 36. Remember, there we read, then the king, the Antichrist, will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. And of course, in chapter 12, in verse 1, we have some helpful insights into when this will occur. Namely, a time, it says, of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. So this is pointing to the time of the great tribulation, the pre-kingdom judgments before Christ returns. And as we see there in verse 1 of chapter 12, the rule of the Antichrist will encompass the most severe persecution in the history of Israel and ultimately the world. Again, verse 36, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. And what is it that was decreed? Well, Daniel 9, 24, we read 70 weeks, literally 70 sevens, or 70 times 70 years, 490 years, have been decreed, which means they have been decided, they have been determined for your people and your holy city. So God has deliberately set aside 490 years in redemptive history to accomplish his purposes in delivering his covenant people, Israel, their capital city, Jerusalem, all of which is consistent with Daniel's prayer. Obviously, these things did not happen at his first coming. And this brings us to the second division of that prophecy, which is in verse 25, where God's angelic messenger gives us the historical context. He says in verse 25, so you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Remember, there are two divisions there. Let me remind you of them so that you get the context of all that's happening here. The first division is seven weeks, or seven times seven, 49 years. And then the second division, 62 weeks. 62 sevens is 434 years. And that means that something special occurred 49 years after the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And what is it that occurred at that time? Well, that was the period of Ezra and Nehemiah when they combined their efforts to establish a working capital city of Judah. It took almost a whole generation. And then the 62 weeks, or the 434 years later, Messiah the Prince comes on the scene. And we know that that happened in the triumphal entry on 9 of Nisan in AD 30. So 49 plus 434 equals 483. 483 years have been completed. But the final seven years have not. The starting point or the terminus a quo of this 490 years of Gentile domination and judgment upon Israel was 445 B.C. 
when Artaxerxes gave the decree to Nehemiah to return and rebuild the city. We read about that in Nehemiah chapter 2. Now remember, there is an extensive time gap here between the first 69 weeks, or in other words, the four, first 483 years, and the final 70th week. And that's not at all uncommon in Bible prophecy. It's also important to remember that ultimately over the course of these 490 years of judgment, Daniel 9.24 reveals six objectives that God will accomplish during that time. First of all, he says to finish the transgression. In other words, the violation of his law. They revolted against his authority. And specifically, this refers to Israel's unrelenting and unrestrained rebellions against God. And then secondly, to make an end of sin, which is a more general term of just um, dealing with all of the wrongs, to seal it up so it will be concealed, to judge it with finality. And then thirdly, to make atonement for iniquity. Kafar in Hebrew, it it's carries the idea of, of a covering by means of an expiatory sacrifice. To make a covering is what it means. In other words, to provide a moral or a legal repayment for a fault or injury. And that's what happened when Christ went to the cross on our behalf. And also he says to bring in everlasting righteousness, also to seal up vision and prophecy, which literally means to hide from view and demonstrate that its functions are over. In other words, visions, revelation, they're over. Prophecy, the message of the prophets, it's over. And finally, to anoint the most holy place. To anoint means to officially inaugurate into public ministry the most holy place. Literally, the holy of holies, the millennial temple. And then in Daniel 9.27, he goes on to describe what will happen during that final week of years, that 70th week that we are anticipating. And he, referring to the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. So in other words, a great deceiver will lure Israel into a protective agreement called a firm covenant. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So in the middle of the week, in other words, three and a half years in, this satanically empowered and possessed Antichrist will seize the temple. He will betray the Jews, demand to be worshipped, even as his forerunner Antiochus Epiphanes. This is the one pictured in Revelation 13, verses 1 and verse 5. The beast coming up out of the sea, given, quote, a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him, referring to the last half of the seven years of Daniel's 70th week. Now, back again to Daniel 11, 36. At the end of the verse, it says, he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. And of course, what was decreed was the 490 years of judgment upon Israel leading up to the return of the Messiah in the establishment of his long-awaited kingdom. So this vile, blasphemous ruler will prosper 
until that time as long as a sovereign God has decreed. I hope you find that as comforting as I do, to know that ultimately he is the one in control. And then secondly, by way of review, very briefly, the final world religion, beginning in verse 37, which is ultimately going to be the worship of the Antichrist. It says, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, and costly stones and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him. He will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. I will not go over all that we learned the last time, but if you want to know the details of that, you can go back and listen. This brings us to our text today, the final point, referring to the final military conquest. And this is truly, truly fascinating. Let me read the text, beginning in verse 40. At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. Now, to understand this, what we need to do is remember the designations of the south and the north in earlier passages, and of course that referred to the um, Ptolemaic and the Seleucid rulers, respectively. And so it's fair to assume that these regions in the future will bear some similarity. You will recall that the south went to Ptolemy, General Ptolemy, and so the Ptolemaic power of Egypt is probably in view here. Ptolemy was one of the generals of Alexander the Great. And I might add that today, Egypt's military power is ranked number 12 out of 140 nations in the world. So it is a very formidable power. It is the most powerful country in the League of Arab States, a regional organization which consists of 22 Arab nations in the Middle East, which by the way includes Syria and Lebanon that we see in the news all the time. It also includes uh, nation states in Northern Africa and the Horn of Africa. So I think it's fair to see Egypt as representative of the Arab nations that will, according to this prophecy, collide with the Antichrist. This, quote, king who will do as he pleases, according to 1136, the one who will do as he pleases and exalt and magnify himself above every god, which, by the way, would include Allah, and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. So he will one day mock the God of Islam, the God of Judaism, and the God of Christianity. You can imagine how people will react to that. Notice also in verse 40, the king of the south will apparently form a coalition against the expansionist campaign of the Antichrist with, it says, the king of the north who will storm against him with chariots, horsemen, many ships. That, by the way, is just representative of, of their counterparts in modern warfare, which would have been unheard of in Daniel's day. Now, what about the king of the north? Well, in earlier passages, we know that this referred 
to Syria, especially as it related to Antiochus Epiphanes, who ruled the Seleucid Empire at that time. And remember, Syria and Babylon um, originally went to General Seleucus. However, Syria today doesn't even remotely qualify as some kind of military powerhouse comparable to the ancient Seleucid dynasty. And it is certainly not a realistic, th realistic threat that could come against a revived Roman Empire ruled by the Antichrist. So given all of this, and given other passages of scripture, I think the most reasonable designation of this future king of the north is Russia. Moscow being directly north of Jerusalem. Now, while I cannot be certain, I will also argue at some level that this prophecy pertains to the battles associated with Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, the prophecy of Gog and Magog and the future invasion of Israel that I think may well occur prior to the tribulation. Now, some of these things that I'm gonna say are gonna be speculative on my part. Some of my argumentation has holes in the bucket, but I think my bucket has less holes than some of the other buckets. And I'm not gonna explain all of the buckets, I'm just gonna show you my bucket, okay? And we're not starting a new denomination. I can't be dogmatic on these things, but I think I will give you an exegetically defensible, tentative hypothesis of what this battle may be all about. No one can be dogmatic about any of this, including the timing. By the way, the Lord knows this, and, and he's deliberately vague about many of these things. You know, if we knew exactly who and when these things were going to happen, you know that we would all react in ways that would make fools out of ourselves. And so what's important is not who and when these things take place, but the certainty that they will take place and that God is in charge and he will judge as he has promised. Now, concerning Ezekiel 38 and 39, and I read chapter 39 a few minutes ago, there are reasonable arguments that those battles are referring to, or that that battle refers to the, the time, the battle of, the Ar of Armageddon in Revelation 16. Um, others say that it will happen at the end of the millennium, and you can read about that, for example, in uh, Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9, but we can't be certain. And I believe that there are just too many disparities in the description of these events to justify those positions. And again, as I say, all positions have holes in the bucket, as does mine. But let me give you why I think this may happen before the tribulation. One of the main reasons is that this will provide the necessary time for Israel to bury the dead and burn the weapons, according to Ezekiel 39.9. Something they would not have time to do or the ability to do during the future pre-kingdom judgments of the tribulation that are gonna be horrific. And I believe you will agree that the world stage is set for these things to happen. We're seeing this right before our eyes today. I mean, think about it. It's not at all difficult to imagine a 10-member NATO confer confederacy 
European Confederacy, a revived Roman Empire being led by some maniacal fiend that would be a threat to Russia and to the Arab nations. Remember, while Israel is not a member of NATO today, it is one of its staunchest allies in the Middle East. Russia's fear of NATO is what's driving Putin's military buildup on the border of Ukraine right now as we speak. So it's not at all difficult to imagine a coalition of southern and northern forces coming against the forces of a NATO alliance ruled by some megalomaniac. And right now we know that Russia and China and Iran and North Korea are testing the resolve of a pathetically weak and incompetent president and administration and an ultra-woke administration, even an ultra-woke military that are more concerned about LGBTQ inclusion and critical race theory than keeping us safe. Now, hold your finger on Daniel 9, I mean Daniel 11 for just a moment. I want to take you to Ezekiel for just a few minutes. Think carefully with me. Let me give you a little, little context here. In Ezekiel chapter 37, you have the vision of the Valley of the Dry Bones depicting a, a national resurrection of Israel, regathering back into the land where eventually at his second coming, the Lord promises in verse 14, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your land. Verse 24, my servant David will be king over them and they will have one shepherd. My servant David, referring to the Messiah, David's descendant, it could not be the David of the Bible. He's been dead by now 400 years. And in verse 26, he promises to ultimately fulfill the, the Abrahamic and Davidic and new covenants as together he will establish his millennial kingdom. In verse 26, we read, I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Well, obviously this hasn't happened, but it will. So that's Ezekiel 37. Go to Ezekiel 38. He gives the detailed prophecy of a future invasion before all this happens. And I believe that this may well be what is being described here in Daniel 1140, but I can't be dogmatic. And then in Ezekiel 39 that we read a little bit ago, we are given a description of God's coming to the aid of Israel, destroying all of her enemies, and a description of the aftermath and ultimate restoration uh, into their land during the millennium. Then in chapters 40 through 48, you have a detailed description of the millennial temple and so forth. So sandwiched in between, catch this now, sandwiched in between Israel's regathering and promised spiritual resurrection in chapter 37, and the millennial temple in chapters 40 through 48 is this invasion that will occur that's detailed in chapters 38 and 39, telling us that this battle is somehow linked to the last day's temple. I'll not take you to Ezekiel 38. Let me just review a few things. In verses 2 through 6, there's a prophecy of Magog ruled by Gog, the prince of Rosh, 
which is reference to the ancient land of the Scythians, easily identified as the former Soviet republics of Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and Tajikistan. And Gog there we read allies with, has allies including Meshach and Tubal, uh, which are territories of Turkey, and Persia, which is Iran, Kush and Ethiopia, which is Sudan, Put, which is Libya, Gomer, Germany, Beth Tagarma, which is Turkey, and may also include Azerbaijan and Armenia. And all of these nations today have various military and economic alliances with Russia, who has historically supplied them with arms. And of these nations today are Islamic nations, including six of the former Soviet republics to the north of Israel. And we all know that these people have a violent hatred of the nation of Israel. Furthermore, it is no secret that all of these nations want to defeat the United States, Israel's greatest ally and protector. And Ezekiel specifically tells us that one day they are going to form this confederacy and invade Israel. You might say, well, what's the big deal with Israel? Why would they want to invade Israel? Well, first of all, let me just give you a few thoughts here. First of all, Satan is ultimately the god of Islam. And he has always been opposed to God's covenant people, the Jews. He wants to prevent the Messiah from returning and so forth. Secondly, the Muslims and other um, non-Muslim Arabs have been and continue to be utterly humiliated by Israel's stunning military victories over them. It makes Allah look pretty weak and pathetic. It even calls into question his existence. They also believe that the land of Israel belongs to them because they are the descendants of Abraham through Ishmael. But thirdly, the Muslims in the Arab world are insanely jealous of how Israel is one of the most prosperous nations in the world, despite its tiny size. It's considered the Silicon Valley of the Middle East. And militarily, it is considered to have one of the most powerful militaries in the world. I checked right now, it has the third most powerful air force in the world. United States, number one, Russia, number two, Israel, number three. It's fascinating. There are 1.3 billion Muslims in the world and only about 15 million Jews. In fact, there are more people in the state of Florida than there are Jews in the whole world. Jews constitute 2.5% or 2.5 tenths of 1% of the world population, all right? Yet the Muslims insist that the Jews are trying to dominate and take over the world. But a fourth reason why they would want to come upon Israel, and I think the most powerful motivation for the Islamic world is, is that, and even the non-Muslim countries, is their ambition for global dominance. They believe that they are to follow the steps of Muhammad and conquer the world for Allah. He alone is to be the authority, and everyone that does not obey him is to be put to death. They must obey his law. And the primary tool for this religious expansionism is jihad, 
a holy war that purges and converts by the edge of the sword. Worse yet, we know that mainstream Shiite Muslims believe in the return of a Messiah-like figure called the 12th Imam, and his coming can be hastened through apocalyptic chaos and violence perpetrated upon Christians and Jews. So when you have this kind of a mindset, you can begin to see why they would want to come down upon Israel. Now, Russia's motivation is very different. Russia is also a very proud nation right now. She is a wounded bear that looks upon Israel with envy. Her motivation is not theological, but political. And they need the help of the Muslim world to defeat the United States and NATO and Israel. Again, we're all kind of a part of the same group. Therefore, they must align themselves with the Muslims and Arabs of the world. And this also would allow them to have access to the vast oil reserves their Arab allies currently have. But it would also help them, if they had Israel, to tap in to the magnificent resources in the land of Israel, natural resources, crucial for their survival and prosperity, including water and chemicals in the Dead Sea and also gain access to Israel's cutting edge technology and their advances, their military advances, and their vast arsenal of nuclear weapons. No doubt these factors pertaining to the Arab Islamic world in Russia help explain Ezekiel's prophecy where God says that he will, quote, put hooks into their jaws, chapter 38, verse four, and bring them down upon Israel Verse 13, to plunder, to carry away silver and gold, and to take away cattle and goods, to capture great spoil. I might add that right now a preemptive airstrike by Israel on Iran's nuclear program could set all of this into motion very, very quickly. So Ezekiel's prophecy describes this alliance of nations that will swoop down on Israel from the north. Chapter 38 and verse 8 and several other passages says it's going to swoop down to the mountains of Israel, also a region of unwalled villages, chapter 38, verse 11, which is currently true of northern Israel. I've been there on multiple occasions. And these invaders will, according to chapter 38, verse 6 and verse 15, come out of the remote parts of the north. But according to 39, chapter uh, verse 4, God will defeat them on the mountains of Israel. And I believe it's possible for these things to occur before the tribulation actually begins with all of the elements describing Israel in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 already in place. I might add another note, and I've talked with some of the Jewish people in Jerusalem about this. Orthodox Jews in the current temple movement in Israel interpret Ezekiel in this very way. They are convinced that the war of Gog and Magog will be the next great war that Israel will fight and it will ultimately be fought over control of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount primarily, but all of the rest of the resources of Israel as well and ultimately think this, they think that this will be the final battle 
described in Zechariah 12 through 14. But I might add just parenthetically before Israel receives um, the restoration temple promised in Ezekiel 37, it must go through the final purging of Daniel's 70th week. Now, let's just speculate here for a moment. Imagine the clout Israel would suddenly have if all of these things actually happen. If these armies are destroyed on the mountains of Israel, the whole world would stand in absolute amazement at what was obviously supernatural. And when you read how God destroys them with earthquakes and pestilences and them fighting amongst themselves, you see that obviously God did this. No nation would dare to go against them. And Israel at that point, as the text says, at least the vast majority of them will know that it was Yahweh that did this. Imagine how the seventh month, seven month burial of the dead and the seven year burning of the weapons of the defeated armies would be a witness to all of the nations. This burning could begin three and a half years before the Antichrist signs the covenant with the Jews, which by the way will technically trigger the tribulation, the Daniel 70th week, and they would then burn into the middle of the tribulation, that time when the Antichrist would then take over and want to be called God. Imagine how even the secular Jews in Israel today, who really couldn't care less right now about the building of the temple and all of those things and infuriating the Muslim world, imagine how they would be they would suddenly realize, let's join in with Orthodox Jews because God did this. And with most of the Muslim world defeated and in shock, there would be no one to stop Israel. Israel would become an oasis in the world, an oasis of peace in the world that will gradually begin to disintegrate into wars and famines and natural disasters that are described in the sealed judgments in Revelation 6. And then add to all of this, suddenly the church being snatched away, the rapture of the church. Sometime around this great battle, either before or during or after, the church is gonna be translated into heaven. Imagine the further chaos and confusion that would occur in the world. And think what this would do with the unprecedented carnage on the mountains of Israel, with a bewildered and defeated Islamic world, with a Russia that is utterly neutered, and then with the sudden disappearance of, of millions of Christians, the world would be sent into a tailspin of confusion. The world's economy would immediately fail. Every government would be in a state of shock. Every leader with nuclear capability would have his finger on the trigger, prepared for further hostilities, and the world would be craving, craving for security, for peace. What a perfect storm for the first seal of judgment in Revelation 6 to be unleashed upon the world. And what's that first seal? What is the first thing that's going to happen? Let me read it to you, Revelation 6, beginning in verse 1. 
Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. This first seal describes the pseudo-peace that will lull the world, including Israel, into a false sense of security and a vision of utopia, the calm before the storm that will be offered to them by the Antichrist. And this would be the perfect time for this world leader to come onto the scene and for people to follow him, to do all that he asks and wanting all that he will promise. I mean, we've seen people do that. I remember in the days of Barack Obama, I mean, people just thought that, oh my, this is, you know, this is the kingdom, you know. Daniel 7, 23 through 24 describes this time when it, it will be an age of a one world government and it will eventually splinter into 10 governments, a new world a um, alliance will occur. At that time, it would be probably far more powerful than NATO and the UN combined. And this 10 nation confederacy will then thrive under the leadership of the Antichrist until the middle of the tribulation. At first, the Antichrist, we know according to prophecy, will represent the nations. He will make concessions to Israel. I mean, after all, look what God has done for them. This astonishing defeat of the Russian Arab alliance. And then he will unite the rest of the world, primarily the Europeans in an alliance with Israel, give them a, con uh, a covenant of, of protection, a covenant of commerce and peace. Oh, there's the new world order. But it will be nothing more than a ploy in preparation for his fiendish, satanically inspired plan, his goal of Jewish genocide and establishing himself as God, Daniel 9, 27. So back to verse 40. At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. And he, referring to the Antichrist, who is the subject of this passage, will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. The, the original language carries the idea of an overflowing river. Like a flooding river, he will pass through this defeated north-south alliance in that realm in Israel. Again, remember, today Israel is one of the key allies of NATO, the United States, and, and an alliance of nations that will most likely be part of that Roman revived Roman Empire ruled by the Antichrist. And although God will do the destruction of this north-south coalition that will come against Israel, that attack would have been considered or probably will be considered an affront to the Antichrist who will claim the victory. Verse 41, he will also enter the beautiful land, referring to the land of Israel, that land that he will ultimately want for himself. And many countries will fall but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. By the way, the counterparts of these ancient lands in the southeast of Palestine today is Jordan. Verse 42, then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. 
And so Egypt and her Arab allies will be easy targets because they basically have no more military. They're defeated on the mountains of northern Israel. So he will head south to occupy these countries. Verse 43, but he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. That's a reference to the idea of them um, readily and eagerly capitulating to all of his demands and his authority and becoming part of his vast and growing empire. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. This is likely a reference to a new alliance that will come out of the north and may even include some of the Jews. We don't, we don't know. But probably out of the east, this is a reference to the Chinese who will see his growing domination in the world as a threat to their power. So this satanically empowered antichrist, it says, will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. Remember, Satan is the one that is empowering him and he will not be defeated until the Lord defeats him. Verse 46, he will pitch his tents and his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. The ancients would have understood this. Whenever a conquering general would uh, come into a land, he would, uh, he would put up uh, his main tent uh, in the middle of a place and then he, his attendants would, be, uh, ha would have their tents around them and it would be a way of symbolizing his utter domination of that region. And that's what is going to happen of one day. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion, which could be translated, he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. The holy mountain is Mount Zion where the temple will be erected and the seas would be the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea. So in other words, there in the region of Jerusalem. So verse 46, again, he will pitch his tents and his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, Mount Zion, where the new, newly erected temple will stand. But notice this last phrase, yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Indeed, dear friends, this satanically empowered counterfeit ruler, a counterfeit of the Lord Jesus, along with his religious helper, the false prophet, and all of his forces are going to be defeated in the battle of Armageddon. We know that in Revelation 19. That will happen in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Let me read to you what Joel has to say in his prophecy. In chapter 3, beginning in verse 2, he says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, by the way, means Yahweh judges. Yahweh judges. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people 
and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. Drop down to verse 12. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel, then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. Dear friends, we don't know the time of these things, but we do know the results. Our God reigns, he rules, and he is coming to judge the nations of the world and all those who reject his command to repent and believe and place their faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope and I pray that you are among the ranks of the redeemed. Because if you're not, one day you will meet the Lord Jesus Christ in the fullness of his wrath. Most today scoff and mock at God's prophetic word, but a day is coming when all of the scoffing and all of the mocking will cease. A day is coming when, according to Philippians 2, beginning in verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, he goes on to say that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, how I pray that that will be your experience one day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the eternal truths of your word. While we cannot understand in any way the fullness of all that you have said, what we can grasp is that you are a sovereign God, a holy God that will indeed judge sin. And we thank you that despite the horrors of your judgment and the unrelenting terror of an eternal hell, we thank you that you have given us grace in the gospel that you have pro provided a way for us to be delivered from the wrath to come through faith in Christ. And I plead with you that there will be a great outpouring of your spirit among sinners today. Let it begin here at Calvary Bible Church and in our community, but Lord, may it spread throughout the world that many might be saved to the praise of your glory. For it's in Christ's name that I pray, amen.
We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.